and Atheist jumps off his seat and runs to his friend. The Bible itself says there is no God. The Bible says that. His friend, a Christian, turns and smiles. That's in Psalm 14 verse 1. You should read the whole verse, my friend, for it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. After today's episode, we'll see that it's not just the Bible that atheists have read wrongly. Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Previously, I reviewed Fault Lines by Vody Balcom and Imprisoned with Isis by Peter Yashek. I dropped an email to the publisher, Salem Books, saying I enjoyed the two books. Thanks for publishing them. They replied, asking if I wanted to review an upcoming book, Is Atheism Dead? by Eric Metaxas. I said yes. I love his Bonhoeffer book, and I had also suggested another book of his, Seven Men, to a young adult who was beginning his reading habit journey. Soon I had in my hands the advanced copy of the book, Is Atheism Dead? Uh, The advanced review copy means that what I have here might be different from the final published copy, but it should not be substantially different. And if it is substantially different, then whoops, I have to redo this podcast episode. The title Is Atheism Dead? is a riff on that famous 1966 time cover asking, Is God Dead? 50 years later, proclaiming that God is dead is no longer as shocking as it was then. Atheists have surveyed the battlefield and consider the battle all but won. Christians are on the retreat in politics, science, education, and even within the church. Liberal theology has taken over many institutions. In this book, Metaxas launches a counter-offensive against the atheistic worldview. He shows that science, True science, pure science, detached from a foreign atheistic worldview, shows what is obvious. Life in this universe is not a random occurrence. Second, archaeology unfailingly confirms what the Bible says happened, actually happened. And third, Metaxas argues that atheism in concept and in practice eats itself. It's not sustainable. These three parts, science, archaeology, and atheism, uh, form the three parts of the book and form a rallying cry for Christians to bring the battle to the atheists. And the offensive starts at the beginning, the Big Bang Theory. Metaxas writes, I quote, Infinite time was the darling of many atheists who maintained that with enough time, anything was possible and God was unnecessary. Whenever anyone objected that certain things could not have happened randomly and without some designer or creator, those wed to the atheist materialist position would object that given enough time, anything could happen. Life could arise randomly out of non-life in the primordial oceans. Amoebas could become redwoods. Aquatic creatures could become Flying mammals, it was only a matter of having enough time, for time covered a multitude of sins. Metaxas then outlines how Big Bang Theory came to be, Einstein makes an appearance, and how, to their great dismay, atheists were forced to confront a universe with a beginning. Oh dear, 
the universe is 13.8 billion years old. Now to us, 13.8 billion years is such a huge number, it might as well be infinity. Surely it still uh, gives atheists the allowance to say, given enough time, anything could happen. However, if you consider that the Earth is only 4.5 billion years old, in the time scales we are talking about, you pretty much have to get things right the first time for life to happen. Imagine if you have 13.8 hours before uh, people start coming to the party, and it takes four and a half hours to bake the cake. Now, given infinite time, okay, you could try different recipes, you throw all those things together, and hope to bake the perfect cake, because given enough time, anything could happen, even a perfect cake. But if you only have 13.8 hours to bake it, and it takes four and a half hours to bake one, then you need to plan. And in the same way, if you only have 13.8 billion years to make life happen, you can't just hope that things come together randomly. Whoa, 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 hold on here. What's this about 13.8 billion years and 4.5 billion years? I believe the Earth is 6,000 years old. Hmm... So we have here <laughs> a young earth creationist who answered the call and showed up to fight the atheist and he suddenly realizes that he is sharing a foxhole with a Christian who is repeating the same billion of years nonsense that atheists are saying. What was supposed to be a two-way pistol fight has become a three-way Mexican standoff. Uh, yes, uh, Metaxas doesn't deal with that tiny little conflict between a young earth and old earth creationist. One side says earth is 6,000 years old and uh, one side believes that it's 13.8, uh, sorry, 4.5 billion years old. Now, in the book, Metaxas frames the fight as one side believes God created everything and the other side believes there is no God. He doesn't address young earth creationism. He doesn't put up their arguments and addresses them because Metaxas is really arguing against atheism. Hence the title is Atheism Dead. And uh, I would like to suggest that if you hold the young earth creationism, that if you believe that earth is 6,000 years old, that you continue to hold on to it as you read the book. You know how you know, Star Trek or Star Wars or Marvel Universe, uh, these universes have their own in-universe logic, their own in-universe physics that explains the tractor beams, teleporters and uh, lightsabers and so on. Now, what young Earth creationists can, can gain from this book is that in this universe, okay, that old Earth and uh, atheists uh, describe, a billion of years universe, this universe shows that life is not a random occurrence. So the in-universe physics or theology or ideas uh, shows that God exists. So I think that's interesting even for a young Earth creationist. But obviously Metaxas uh, believes in the old Earth and uh, let us just follow his thoughts here, all right? So here, Metaxas is saying that Christians need to know the argument that given enough time, anything could happen 
is dead in the water. There is not enough time. Uh, Christians then need to take the fight to the atheists to ask them, do you know that your heroes, your thinkers and scientists have admitted that the evidence is compelling? Life is not a random occurrence. And the Big Bang Theory is only one part of a greater argument. Next, there is also the fine-tuning argument. A big part of what Metaxas does is to convey how easily it is for life not to exist. Metaxas quotes many scientists on this, and one of them is Hugh Ross, a Caltech astrophysicist, from his book, Why the Universe is the Way It Is. I quote, at certain early epochs in cosmic history, the universe's mass density must have been as finely tuned as one part in 10 to the 60th power to allow for the possible existence of physical life at any time or place with the entirety of the universe. This degree of fine-tuning is so great that it's as if right after the universe's beginning, someone could have destroyed the possibility of life within it by subtracting a single dime's mass from the whole of the observable universe or adding a single dime's mass to it. End quote. Isn't that crazy? Just a single dime, okay? That coin, a single dime's mass, if you subtract or add to it, to the whole universe, and then the whole universe would be destroyed. And uh, this type of numbers, all right, is one of the things that Metaxas does in this book. He describes them, explains how these, uh, these numbers make sense to us. And he describes other parameters, including the size of the earth, how perfect it needs to be, the relative mass of the moon that is so fitting for us to, in order for life to exist, the location of the solar system, the properties of water, the properties of light, and the four fundamental forces. And these are only some. And he only lists some because there are 200 parameters to get exactly right for life to happen. 200 parameters. That's like going to Vegas, pulling the arm of 200 slot machines in the casinos, and hitting the jackpot for every one of them. And what are you going to tell the casino owners as they strap you to a chair for a trip to the bottom of the ocean? As they ask you, how did you do it? What did you do to our slot machines that you can hit the jackpot for every one of those 200 slot machines? And you are just saying, I'm just really lucky. And, and you're telling them that you just let me call my science professor. She'll tell you, it's not just likely, but inevitable that this could randomly happen, that these 200 slot machines could all hit the jackpot in a row. And the nice casino owners and gangsters allow you to call her, and you call her and you explain that you are on the edge of an existential crisis. And then she says, Nobody is that lucky. The machines must have been raped. Which is not what you wanted to hear. <laughs> and, as, and that's where atheism has left the non-believer. No help whatsoever to deal with the evidence. Metaxas quotes Stephen Hawking. If the overall density of the universe were changed by even 0.0000000001%, no stars or galaxies could be formed. 
if the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in a hundred thousand million million, the universe would have re-collapsed before it reached its present size. End quote. Metaxas quotes Francis Crick, one of two scientists who discovered DNA's double helix. An honest man, armed with all the knowledge available to us now, could only state that in some sense, the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going. End quote. Next, Metaxas also quotes Richard Dawkins, the most famous atheist in the world. I quote here, During an interview for the 2014 film Expelled, Richard Dawkins allowed that, yes, the astonishing and baroque complexity of DNA might indicate a signature of some kind of designer, end quote. And I just want to say here, which Metaxas also says here, that Richard Dawkins is not saying there is a designer because he quickly dismissed uh, that thought. Despite Hawking, Craig, Dawkins and others conceding the complexity of life and the force of the fine-tuning argument, they don't end up believing in intelligent design. So what do they believe? Instead, and what I'm about to say could be disappointing for atheists. They suggest, Francis Crick suggested aliens, that aliens brought life from other planets to Earth. Dawkins calls that an intriguing possibility. Others suggest multiple universes, like the Spider-Verse. And uh, ideas like this are the plots for Alien and Marvel movies. Others still cling on to random occurrence. It is all a happy accident. Isn't it amazing? 200 jackpots in a row. We are really blissfully lucky and I would say ignorant. But can we trust Eric Metaxas with the science? Are the numbers right? Is he reading them correctly? He is not a scientist. He graduated in English from Yale. He wrote best-selling books on, not on hard science, not on the universe, but on Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Luther. He is more of a religious biographer from his achievements rather than a hard science reporter. Would you trust Metaxas to make sense of the origin of life and the universe? Well, I won't, which is why I'm grateful that he quotes from the scientists. He allows, I mean, there is a recommendation from, from scientists for this book, and he, uh, he gives the primary sources, okay? So he lists their books from both religious and atheists so that we can check what these guys are saying. Because Metaxas did not discover, nor does he ever claim to have discovered any of the things here. He is merely assembling a story that uh, a story that all scientists know, but retelling them to Christians, who should know, he argues, that the Big Bang Theory has destroyed the atheist argument that, given enough time, anything could happen. And he wants us to know that there are at least 200 parameters that are so fine-tuned, so fine-tuned, uh, that it defies a happy accident, because we are just not that lucky. And he also says that we can't then uh, give credit to evolution because, you see, water doesn't evolve. Light doesn't evolve. There is no survival of the fittest over successive generations for water, gravity, mass, size of the moon, and so on. Which means 
every condition that was necessary for life was perfect from the very beginning. Other than the science, the next thing that Christians need to know is archaeology has never contradicted the Bible, not once. King David was fictional, they said, like King Arthur was fictional. There was no evidence he existed, they said. And by that, they mean the Bible does not count. And lo and behold, archaeologists then discover carved, carved into a memorial stone from 8th century BC, the words, the house of David. My favorite chapter in the book is the three misbehaving boys who change history. It's three stories, each story starring a naughty boy. I told one story over breakfast, another during lunch, and the last one at dinner. So while my wife and children were having their meals, I was telling them of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, Hezekiah's Tunnel in 1880, and the Silver Katef Hinnom Scrolls in 1979. I took my story outline from Metaxas, simplifying what Metaxas wrote in this book. I quote, when we are dealing with the Bible, one finds a predictably high level of skepticism, especially among those who don't take the text very seriously. Thus, many have claimed the Bible texts were changed in the course of their being copied over the centuries by the monks of the Middle Ages. Skeptics suggest the monks, in league with the all-powerful church, transformed them into what the church wanted rather than what they originally were, end quote. I drew, sketched the outline of the problem. I then asked my children what would it take to prove that the Bible was never changed. And I gave the answer to their delight uh, in the form of a young shepherd boy looking for his lost sheep. He finds a cave Thinking his lost sheep might have gone into that cave, he throws a rock and then hears broken pottery. And against every parent's wishes, the young boy enters this cave alone and finds treasure, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Metaxas tells it, Surely the largest jewel in this dazzling treasury were the 2,000-year-old copies of the 37 books of the Bible, which showed that what we possess today as our own Bible is precisely the same as what existed then. Never in human history has an observed absence of change so instantly and dramatically change everything. End quote. In a way, this book is a collection of stories. There are many people in this book with their own adventures, hopes and dreams told amidst the cosmology, biology and archaeology. Metaxas writes in a way that we can just take the bare essence of the story and we can retell it to delight even young children. And there is more. Metaxas describes the story behind the long-lost Hittite civilization, the Moabite stone, Pilate's stone, Pulo Siloam, Herod's Temple, Sergius Paulus inscription, Gallio inscription, and more. And what I just listed are the older discoveries. He covers new ones. For example, in one intriguing chapter, he details the discovery of the childhood home of Jesus. Did you get that? Jesus, the place where Jesus grew up. Metaxas writes, I quote, First of all, on the face of it, the idea that a simple home built over 2,000 years ago would survive and eventually be identified as belonging to anyone 
specifically seems absurd. And in this case, we are talking about a very out-of-the-way village or town called Nazareth and about an unknown carpenter builder named Joseph who raised his family of several children there, including his eldest, Jesus. This would be this would have been where his wife Mary raised their children and cooked their meals. But this place, both the town and the house itself, would have been distinguished principally by being undistinguished. This was not a palace or any kind of structure that was any different from the innumerable other structures built throughout what we today call the Holy Land. It would have been a very simple home for a working class family in an obscure village. Why should any such place survive beyond a century or two? End quote. And with that, he has this chapter where he explains uh, what, what's going on and how they discover and why they think this is the childhood home of Jesus. And these are described in part by uh, a book written by Dr. Dark describing this finding uh, which was published in late 2020. That's last year. So there are other recent discoveries, uh, which is exciting to read huh, when, when I was going through this. And uh, recent discoveries include, in 2018, a seal ring was found bearing the name of Pontius Pilate. In 2019, a tiny ceramic pomegranate was found in Shiloh, precisely matching the description of those described in Exodus 28, 33-35. And in Christmas 2020, a mikvah purification bath was discovered from the time of Jesus near what was believed to be the Garden of Gethsemane. And one of the most exciting recent discoveries is of Sodom. It's a story of a man, Dr. Collins, who believes what the Bible says is true and goes out looking for Sodom despite unbelievers saying that it is a fable and believers saying that it is under the, the Dead Sea. At the site he discovers an artifact, an artifact more important than Thor's hammer because Thor's hammer is fictional, but Sodom is not. Dr. Collins has proven that Sodom is as real as the city you are living in now. Finishing the archaeology part, we are not done yet. There is a third part, and it is, to me, the most debatable part, the most contentious part, not in terms of the content, but in terms of the tone. I like Eric Metaxas when he is happy. <laughs> a happy Eric is exuberant in his praises, whether it's on uh, Bonhoeffer or on the seven great men or the science and archaeology that he describes, full of wonder and awe. And angry Metaxas or uh, attacking Metaxas is... Well, I don't like him when he is angry. Let me read to you what he writes about people he doesn't like. I quote, and you may judge. Metaxas writes, Richard Dawkins may have spent his career doing science, but in talking about what science actually is, he has shown himself to be hopelessly confused. We might expect scientists to be able to do science, but we should not expect them to understand the idea of science any more than we can expect a fish to understand how he swims. End quote. I think uh, that is a bit too much to say that a scientist uh, may not understand uh, what it means to the idea of science. But that is my opinion. And again, uh, he, Metaxas uh, writes, 
But the new, uh, this is much later on in a different chapter, yeah? So Metaxas writes, But the new atheists seem to revel in tossing caution and nuance to the wind. So to search for rhyme or reason in what they say can sometimes be like trying to parse the ravings of a madman. In particularly purple flights, they contradict themselves at nearly every turn of phrase. Bostrophedonically, and here I had to search a dictionary to find out what that word means, Bostrophedonically, doubling back on themselves again and again in ways that seem tangential and tangled, and yet the proudly indignant determination with which they speak captivates us and carries us forward until it seems we have entirely forgotten the objection that a moment ago bothered us, for they have moved on and are still moving on and on and on. Part of this may be intentional strategy on their parts, but whether conscious or unconscious, or what part of each is impossible to say. End quote. Now, I could defend how he writes. Elijah egged on the Baal prophets. Uh, Jesus and the Apostle Paul called people brutal vipers and dogs. Uh, militant atheists like Richard Dawkins and Richard, uh, Christopher Hitchens are notorious for their hostility against the faith, and one could argue they are getting less than what they deserve. After all, uh, in these various chapters, uh, Metaxas is responding directly to their uh, charges and their statements, hence the strong words. But on the other hand, Elijah did command that all the Baal prophets be killed, which means whatever license he may have as an Old Testament prophet may not apply to us today. And we have to remember that Jesus was silent before the Sanhedrin, Pilate, and Herod. And Paul in Romans 9 said, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. End quote. So you see here how much Paul loved uh, those who were against him. And we must also remember that as bad as Dawkins and Hitchens and the rest of them may be, Christians have throughout history been gracious to men far worse than them. If we just take one of Metaxas' frequent targets in the book, Christopher Hitchens, uh, he wrote, God is not great, and God is deliberately spelled with a small g. <laughs> now this guy has a very nasty reputation. I don't know much about him, and I don't really want to know much about him. But after reading his name so often, I decided to uh, find that book that I have laying around, but never got to. So I opened the book, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens by Larry Alex Taunton. Now let me just quote from Taunton's book here. I quote, While I do not quite want to say that the public Christopher was a sham, perhaps an occasional actor might be a better description, he said and did things in my company that would lead one to conclude that this public manifestation of Christopher Hitchens was not the real one. End quote. In another part of the book, Taunton writes, You see, in one manifestation of himself, Christopher Hitchens was everything that the people in this room taught him to be, a radical leftist, sympathetic Marxist, and militant atheist. But in another more carefully guarded and secret book, Christopher Hitchens was something altogether different, and therein lies the remarkable plot twist in the tale that is Christopher Hitchens' life. End quote. 
Now, Metaxas, uh, going back to Metaxas' book now, has a chapter on three famous atheists who converted out of atheism. Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, and Anthony Flew, which makes one wonder if Christopher Hitchens had lived a little bit longer. Perhaps he too would have accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Saviour. If you prefer a less spicy book that argues against militant atheists, you can read uh, this uh, book, The Dawkins Letters by David Robertson. Robertson wrote open letters to Richard Dawkins, which Dawkins later published in his website, and these letters were then adapted into a book. The tone here is gentle. For example, in one chapter, it starts this way. Dear Dr. Dawkins, I would like to apologize if I am in any way misrepresenting your position. It is not intentional. I disagree with what you say, and it would therefore be pretty pointless to write about what you are not saying. However, I am becoming more and more convinced that your position is primarily a philosophical and religious position, rather than one you are driven to by science." End quote. And that letter, which is that chapter, ends in this way. And one last thought. One thing that really annoys some atheists is when Christians promise to pray for them. Why do we pray for you? And skipping to the last uh, paragraph. Therefore, to pray for you is a supreme act of love because it asks for the best for you. And Jesus tells us that we are to love our enemies. So I do pray for you and for all those who have been deluded into thinking that there is only the material and that their creator does not exist. Forgive me. End quote. Now, the... Metaxas, in this third part of the book, has many good things going for it. Metaxas counters common atheist points like religious wars. Uh, the atheists ignore that there have been more deaths caused by secular states. Uh, religion suppressing science. And here the atheists ignore that many scientists, past and present, are religious, including Kepler, Copernicus and Galileo. And there are many other good points. But because Metaxas engages directly with atheism's talking points, he comes across frustrated at the arrogance and ignorance that he sees. In conclusion, Is Atheism Dead has many great stories that are simple enough to be told over family meals and deep enough to get you exploring science and archaeology with the many books uh, and names that Metaxas cites and recommends. With regards to the tone, which is throughout the whole book but concentrated in the third part, I see it as Metaxas getting tired of seeing Christians on the retreat when Christians are the one with the winning positions. He is uh, going down the line, kicking soldiers out of the ditches, shouting, we have the guns, the tanks, the enemy has nothing. They are cock-eyed and shooting blanks. So come on, which stirs up the troops at the expense of the other side. You see, not all atheists are worked up like Dawkins or Hitchens, and for them, a respectful yet convicted tone as found in The Faith of Christopher Hitchens by Larry Alex Taunton or The Dawkins Letters by David Robertson would be more welcome. Ultimately, I don't think the tone detracts from what the book offers, and Metaxas does achieve his aims. The question, is atheism dead? 
is deliberately provocative and rallies Christians to confront atheists with the knowledge that life is not a happy accident. Archaeology has proven the biblical record over and over again, and atheists ultimately simply have no ground to stand on. This is a Reading and Readers review of Is Atheism Dead? by Eric Metaxas. If you like this episode and my other episodes, don't you think more people should know about Reading and Readers? You have learned so much in this episode, didn't you? Do you know anyone else who likes science or archaeology or the question of atheism? Now think of a name and I hope that you will take the time to share about Reading and Readers, the podcast where I review Christian books for you. The next episode, I will review Faith Life's free book for October. Until then, keep reading.